The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! Welcome to yet another episode of They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, a movie podcast, and I'm your host, Lee Russell. I'm joined by my two luscious, lavish lesbian co-hosts, Daniel Harper and Paul Romali. How are you gentlemen doing tonight? How did you know? I just suspected. Yeah, it's it, a thing, no. I, I think it was your uh, good hair day picks this morning that's uh, tipped me off. Yeah, unfortunately that's not still going on. Hey, this, it's great to talk about Good Hair Day on a podcast. Audio mm-hmm. format, people are definitely interested in this. Yeah, but, but still, but I mean, the best thing about you, Dan, is I don't know where the beard starts and the hair begins, so it's like... It's all, it's all just one thing. I mean, I'm kind of like Cousin <laughs> It or Sasquatch or, uh, you know, hypertrichinosis is what we call this. So it's yes. <laughs> he is the wolf man. He's a Mexican carnival freak. <laughs> I, I would probably make more money, you know, so, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How are you doing, Paul? I'm here. I'm here. here. There you go. That's right. There you go. You got yeah. what, what the first fifteen minutes of the film we're going to cover tonight. So I am completely unprepared. That's it. Well, it's you're going. Well, basically, that's how I approach most life, anyway. So let's do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pull yeah, it out. So... And start poking. <laughs> that's definitely a strategy that works well with lesbian vampires, by the way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> So yeah, we're going to be covering a uh, Jess uh, Franco film here tonight, another one of Daniel's picks, and a pretty good one. But before we get into that, we're going to be sort of talking about what we've watched in the last week or so, and we're going to do a round of movie gods. So Daniel, uh, if you want to start with what you've uh, watched uh, this week, uh, you can go right ahead. Sure. Um, First thing I watched was actually uh, Alice in Wonderland, and probably not a version you've ever seen. Um, this was a TV production made for the BBC in 1966. It's directed by Jonathan Miller. It has Peter Sellers. It has John Gigland. It has, uh, I mean, literally just anybody who was a British actor in 1966 is basically in this. Um, hmm. It's an amazing uh, long cast. And it's basically, it's all in black and white. It's about an hour and 20 minutes long. And the whole point is to kind of do a very bared down without like crazy costumes and stuff but to do Alice in Wonderland in this abstract way that's true to the book but that doesn't have the kind of like they don't have animal head costumes they don't have you know kind of it's just kind of surrealism it's very stark it's very image based and it's kind of brilliant and uh, I found this through uh, my friend Jack Graham's podcast Um, he, he did this a little while ago and I'll uh, try to give you a link so you can uh, kind of check it out. Um, the cool. film is available on various illicit file sharing uh, mechanisms. If you are uh, so inclined, oh, to none of us it. use that stuff. And I would uh, highly recommend. There's also, a, from what I understand, a really nice DVD release, which includes the 1933 Alice in Wonderland as well as the uh, 66 version. Um, right. And I would um, 
I'm considering buying that DVD at some point. It, the, the, this film is, is definitely worth not only watching but revisiting. I, I only watched it once, but it was uh, it's it's pretty pretty fascinating. It's a great version. It captures a lot of the uh, the kind of social anxiety, the the psychedelia, in kind of a not cliched way, and a lot of that kind of stuff that was going on in the original story and in kind of what's going on in 1966 in Britain. So really really well done. Cool. I, th- I, I, was, I was certain when you said Alice in Wonderland, you were going to say you watched the porno version of Alice in Wonderland for like the 70s or whatever. <laughs> oh, oh I, I did that too. I mean, that's just that's kind of my, you know. Oh, hold well, on, are we allowed to talk about the porn we watch on this podcast? Because, well, like, man, I'm going to talk way longer every week. You know? Yeah. That's a whole other thing. Get out the white rabbit and go into the hole, if you know yeah, what I mean. We're going to go way longer and way deeper, yeah. yeah. yeah mm-hmm. that's, how, that's how it goes. We are talking about lesbian vampires this week. so yeah. mm-hmm. um, The other thing I watched was, uh, after watching uh, Vampiros Lesbos, I was actually uh, curious enough about this other film that he made literally right after this, uh, starring the same actress, Miranda Soledad, uh, mm-hmm. and, I mean, a lot of the same crew. And uh, this is a film called She Killed in Ecstasy, mm-hmm. uh, which it was, you know, anytime you give me a film title that is also a sentence, I'm down. <laughs> like, that's kind of, like, all I need to enjoy a film is give me a film title that is also a sentence. I don't want to talk too much about this film just because I think we are going to cover this yeah. um, in, in a few weeks. The only thing I'm going to say is uh, after Vampiros Lesbos and She Killed an Ecstasy, why the fuck did you get me started on this guy with Zombie Lake and Oasis? <laughs> um, because I, I, I'm just saying, it's, you know, Oasis of the Zombie, I mean, uh, Zombie Lake, that's one thing, but Oasis of the Zombies, why did you make me sit through that piece of shit? Yeah. <laughs> There's much better stuff available. And that's kind of all I'm going to say about uh, She Killed an Ecstasy for now. Because well, 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 I mean, listen, some detail later on. Listen, Daniel, we had to build you up. I mean, we, we okay. start with the really bad stuff, and then we build you up, and, and we, we, we bring you to the peak of the mountain. So and That's, that's, that's fair. Except I recommended this one because I found it. So, you know, like that's yeah, the, yeah. Uh, you know. But, uh, you know we, we, were, we were trying to make you open to discovery. And, uh, that's, you fair. Know. that's fair. Yeah. That's fair. That's the excuse I'm using anyway. I'm okay, that's it. That. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Anything else? Uh, that's all I really have to talk about this week, yeah. Oh, you mean uh, I'm not gonna go on for an hour and talk about the uh, the movies I watched the way I did last week? Ah, oh, who cares? Uh, if you wanted to, you could, but fuck it. Uh, I mean, no, that, no. that's that saves me editing another podcast. I <laughs> I did listen to that episode that we recorded last week, by the way, Lee, and mm-hmm. uh, I must say, when I say edit this out, or so I don't sound like an idiot. I actually try to edit it out so I don't sound like an idiot. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if you didn't notice that I said that a couple of times. Or oh, if you yeah, just I, noticed. Decided, I noticed. Okay, you just left it in. That's fair. That's fair. Okay, I'm with like, you. To be fair, I listened through the whole thing, and I was like, yeah, I'm not editing this. I'm not editing okay. this. I'm not that's editing this. <laughs> that's fair. I'm with, I'm with you. I, I get that. I get that. All right, uh, Paul, anything you've uh, watched or uh, purchased in the last week or so? Uh, purchased, no, watched, uh, I've been going the 90s, uh, 80s, because, uh, back to VHS, but I watched some comedy, uh, satire comedy, Full Moon High, nice werewolf movie, really just slapstick comically kind of stuff, I really like it. Uh, Beyond Reanimator, I watched, mm-hmm. um, just a couple different old horror, more horror movies based, you know, I did actually sit down and watch, um, uh, Maniac Cop 2. And uh, th- I was I, one thing I did notice in Full Moon High. Uh, I don't um, if you know her name is Lauren Landon from Maniac Cop is actually a, a cameo in that. 
The, the blonde from Maniac Cop is actually in there. So I was like, hey, look at that. Uh, I know we did cover Maniac Cop. And, no, uh, we never covered that. I, yeah, we it did. never I happened. We covered that, yeah. yeah we, well, we didn't. <laughs> We did, but we did. We did. Yeah. Um, just other stuff like that. Just been watching like some Halloween twos and just just chilling out with the kids. Dracula Dead and Loving It, having some fun. Yeah, that's good. Uh, Dracula Dead and Loving It. Something we are uh, set to cover next week. Actually, uh, we're going to be doing a Mel Brooks episode. So uh, it, it's it's refreshing that Paul actually uh, watched one of the films uh, that we're going to cover for the. For I could the try podcast. to. I could. Try, I could try to forget it if you want. I can see. <laughs> hey, whatever you want to do, man. We're pretty fast and loose here, so it's, maybe uh, maybe I'll fast forward one just for the uh, novelty of it. You know? I could drink. Uh, <laughs> I just drink some uh, amnesia wine, like the lady yeah. in the film that we we're just about to do did, yeah. and I won't know what happened. Well, I'll tell you what, Daniel. We'll find the most racist, misogynist film we can find, and then that way you you'll have to fast forward through it. The Living Dead. What the hell? <laughs> yeah, I I would I would actually watch that so I would have something to talk like so I could yeah, legitimately I complain about it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> All right, uh, I I have a couple things here to mention. Um, I actually, with uh, Daniel's recommendation, I watched uh, Crazy Mary Dirty Larry from 1974. Uh. Uh, which is on Netflix right now, and fuck, I really enjoyed the hell out of that film. I actually, I pretty much like Peter Fonda and anything he did in that period, and Susan George is super fucking hot in that film, and I think it works really well. That's one we got to cover on the podcast. I don't want to talk too much about it. I think that's a really great film. I watched it, and I enjoyed it, so I'll just leave it at there for now. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I agree. I don't want to talk too much about it until we actually talk about it, but... Uh... Yeah, no, that that's on my short list for best of the year, honestly. And the other one, I, other one I watched uh, on Netflix right now. There's a there's a handful of Shaw Brothers films that just sort of appeared on Netflix in the last little while. I watched Heroes of the East, which is a Shaw Brothers film that I had not seen. The podcast I follow, uh, friend of the sh- friends of the show, the Midnight Movie Cowboys, uh, they are constantly pimping this fucking film, and then I finally got around to watching it, and my god. Probably the best Shaw Brothers film I've ever seen. Really great martial arts film that combines romantic comedy, battle of the sexes, clash of cultures. Basically showcases different styles of martial arts really well. And it's a refreshing film because it's a Hong Kong martial arts film that does not treat fucking Japanese people as degenerate mongrels who (laughs) who are all evil and have Hitler mustaches. But isn't that true? I mean, isn't that just true of the Japanese? I think that, you know... It's an objective truth, but it's nice to, you know, sugarcoat it a little bit. Well, that's kind of funny because, um, yeah, because all the martial arts films that are during, like, any kind of World War II or anything anywhere near any Japanese, they come over and they all look like little Hitlers. It's really Mm -hmm. funny. Yeah, one one we have to cover at some point is uh, I think it's called Streets on Fire, which is overtly racist against the Japanese, like to the point where it's just like hitting you over the head. But mm. this one, it, it treats it treats all the Japanese martial artists with great respect. Although, of course, at the same time, it's a it's a Chinese martial arts film, so the Chinese in the end has to win, and he has to win dominantly. But he doesn't gloat or anything like that. He actually yeah. treats his opponents with respect. And it's it's Gordon Liu. Most North American audiences know from the Kill Bill films, know him as Johnny Moe and Pai Mei in the in the two different Kill Bill films. He's fucking badass in this film, man. Like he, he is so you know. Yeah, I mean but he is so underrated, like 
Uh, he he's one of those guys that kind of flies under the radar compared to like Jet Li and those guys. And Jet Li made like a lot of really shitty movies over here, and he doesn't deserve quite the respect that I think Gordon Liu does. He's just really badass. I forget the name of the female uh, lead in this as well, but she's really good. I think probably the only complaint I have of the film is that they kind of dropped the romantic uh, comedy thing between the two of them by the second half of the film. But at the same time, it's like they just bombard you with so much like really great fight scenes that are not... They don't feel like those overly staged, kind of ridiculous, almost dance sequences that you sometimes see in these martial arts films. Like, they come off as real martial arts contests. So it's, it's just really well done. It's one of the best films I've seen from Shaw Brothers. And not only that, it looks beautiful. For, for a film that's mostly shot on soundstage sets and stuff like that, looks fucking fantastic, great colors. And uh, I was just really impressed. This is one that's going to go on my best for the year for uh, watching this year. So, Well, fuck, now I have to watch it for next week. That's just the way it goes. Yeah, there you go. Uh, it's on Netflix, so uh, get it while you can, guys. Uh, there's, there's a lot of great uh, Shaw Brothers stuff on Netflix right now. Te- technically speaking, Japan is farther east than China is. So mm-hmm. It really Japan depends is- on where you set the prime meridian, though. That is, yeah. that is a, uh, you know. <laughs> But no, but it it is like um it, it that title actually even pays more respect honestly to like the Japanese uh, because the the whole idea of the story is that there's this one Chinese guy who marries a Japanese bride as a sort of like arranged marriage and then he rejects her because she's I'm not putting up with your shit I'm a martial artist and I want to practice my stuff and so he's kind of discombobulated by her uh, sort of overt wanting to do stuff and not just be a su- sort of a submissive wife and so she goes back to Japan and rekindles with her uh, her sort of a trainer in Japan and then he brings a bunch of his martial artist uh, buddies over to China to fight this guy so you get all these different Japanese styles against his Kung Fu style, which is uh, pretty interesting. So they, they are sort of the titular heroes of the East in a, in a certain degree because all, all the fight like it's cool. Like, all the fights, it, it's not like typical martial arts film with, like, lots of blood. Like, no one dies in this film. Just martial arts guys fighting and determining who's the better guy. It's pretty good. It, it's really refreshing and really nice. It's, it's, a, it's a really great fucking film. So yeah, that's that's pretty much it for uh, for me. Uh, I think we can move on to movie god if uh, both you gentlemen are so inclined. Daniel, I'll let you start if you have anything you want to throw at us. I do. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this at either one of you guys who want to answer it. I'm gonna go uh, classic on this one, and I'm gonna make you pick between two directors. Okay. I'm gonna make you kill a genre today. I'm gonna make you kill either Alfred Hitchcock or John Ford. Ooh. And the way this game works, for anybody who doesn't know, is the idea is you have to kill one of these two people or one of these two movies or whatever, and the uh, idea is that not only does this not exist now, but it gets erased from the timeline. If you kill John Ford, you basically kill the Western, and if you kill Alfred Hitchcock, you basically kill the thriller or yeah. reshape it in some interesting way. So That's easy, it's easy for me. Bye-bye, Ford. <laughs> <laughs> Because you don't like because you don't like westerns. Because I'm racist. Wait, that, doesn't, that doesn't work, does it? No. No, no, uh, no. I just don't take it in. I would rather watch thrillers than uh, westerns. Yeah. W- without without John Ford, you probably wouldn't have John Wayne either. That's that's probably one of those uh, one of those like sideline things. I was. Well, I apologize to the Duke. 
You're dead. Yeah, well, that's that's the weird thing because John, like, that was one of the weird great marriages of Hollywood because John John Ford was actually kind of like a uh, kind of like a leftist kind of socialist oh, no, no, kind of no. guy. John Ford was a total left wing dude, and John Wayne was really really right wing. Yeah. And yet they made amazing films in the like uh, in the conflict between them. They made great films. In fact, yeah, uh, that's the dead. only way you can really understand the Searchers is to understand it as basically an argument between John Ford and John Wayne. At least yeah. in my opinion. And yeah, Wayne was a, a was a Mason. So there you go. Yeah, you know what, Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, I I kind of think of who he influenced. Without him, you don't have really. Dario Argento taking off because that was his primary influence in his early films. Honestly, you'd probably see Argento probably making the shit he makes now in the last twenty years. Oh yeah, as opposed to the to his early stuff. Probably lose to Palma. De Palma is about to say yeah. De Palma's probably gone. Uh, fuck. That's that is a terrible decision to fucking make. Uh, but because then, uh, Francois Truffaut would have had to interview somebody else for his terrible uh, book. So you know, there's that too. <laughs> With Ford, if you don't have Ford, you arguably don't have. Well, maybe you don't have Leone making his films. You you could argue that he'd still steal enough from Kurosawa, but then again, Kurosawa was stealing from Ford and stuff as well. To a certain Ford is degree. one of those real. I think I think what's interesting about this is these are both like guys that are like so influential on a handful of people in really overt ways. But on kind of everybody working within a genre, you know. Yeah. So it's not so much that like you lose Kurosawa, for instance. Kurosawa still makes films, but he makes very different films without yeah. John Ford. You know what I mean? Oh man, you know, I think my decision also falls in the same vein as Paul, where I just have to think of the genre I love better and the films I love better that came from that genre or are influenced by that genre. And honestly, I think I have to keep John Ford just because I want Leone to be the Leone I know. I mean, Hitchcock, as great as he is, honestly, he influences certain things. Like, again, he influences De Palma and stuff, but there's still a lot of great horror stuff that isn't overtly referencing Hitchcock that would still be here. But with John Ford, I think that kind of changes American film to a drastic degree that I don't think I could accept. So I would have to kill Hitchcock, and I would have to keep Ford. There you go. Awesome. Yeah. Nice to done. Be... Yeah. No, I, yeah. I like, I like that answer. I would, uh, I thought about it. I mean, it's a hard decision, but ultimately, I think, even though I think I like individual Hitchcock films more than I like individual Ford films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would, I would agree with you. I mean, because I love fucking Psycho. And I love um, Vertigo, and I love a lot of other ones, but I think that John Ford has a bigger influence on stuff uh, that I love. You that's, know? that's exactly and I, what... And I think without Hitchcock, you might have still gotten some interesting stuff. I think you would have just... It would have pushed more towards noir and less yeah. towards thriller, and I think that that might have been the... Uh, it, it would have been different. Uh, the one thing that... Hitchcock brought a lot of technical innovations into... Yeah, he did, yeah. That's that's the other side that it's kind of hard to predict. Like, would storyboarding have become, like, a big thing without Hitchcock? Eh, maybe, but he did start off as an animator, so, you know. Yeah, that's that's what made it really hard for me, because uh, when I think about it, like, Hitchcock's films, like, just if you're looking at each film on a singular level, uh, generally they're way better than Ford. Like, there's just a lot better Hitchcock films than there are Ford films, but Ford's... I, I would just argue he's probably a bit, a bit more influential overall 
than Hitchcock is. At least, at least for the stuff I like. So yeah. that's the way I gotta go. But that that is that's a real tough one. And fuck you for asking it. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's uh, pretty. That's pretty much the point of Movie God. Is mm-hmm. that's a real tough one. And fuck you for asking it. Yeah. I, I I um you told me to come up with one and I forgot to come up with one and then I came up with one and then you Daniel kind of took it a little bit. Because, well, I'll still do it. Still do it. Still do it. Well, actually, mine was um, because I was I was bouncing back some directors, and it was gonna be uh, Hitchcock, and I was gonna say um, Francis Ford Coppola. Which oh, one fuck. would you rather? But, oh, I take uh, it. I know. I know. Uh, some people just adore that guy because I was jumping between Kubrick, Coppola, and was it Scorsese? I'm trying to think of the other one. That I was yeah. thinking of, but what I I was gonna go with Kubrick, but I think Kubrick was really inspired by Hitchcock. So if you get rid of Hitchcock, you kind of get rid of Kubrick. If you're gonna say Hitchcock and Kubrick, that would have been a tough decision for me. But if but, but since I was saying... I was gonna say that, but I think that would kind of if you know what I mean, it would cancel itself out because if you got rid of Hitchcock, you'd actually get rid of Kubrick. I don't yeah. know that you would, honestly. Really? Okay, let's yeah, go with I that think... one then. Anyway, because yeah, Daniel fucked no, no. it up. So. Yeah, I did. I did. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I don't know that Kubrick's style is like so derived. I mean, obviously Hitchcock has this huge influence, mm-hmm. but mostly in terms of thrillers. I mean, I think The Shining doesn't exist in its current form without Hitchcock, mm-hmm. but I think that Kubrick still kind of exists. I don't know that like yeah. you know Paths of Glory or Spartacus or Doctor Strange okay, really yeah. owes anything. Right, to, right. So I think it's you, really just The Shining that really owes a lot to Kubrick. Or, like, like as a as a horror guy, that's what I always think of. Sure, so, sure, sure. But, so if you look at a broader sense of it, then you can still have Kubrick. Right, yeah, right. See, I mean, if, <coughs> I think if you kill Kubrick, I think if you kill Hitchcock, you kill The Shining. Well, oh, if you if you if you do that, you're killing my favorite Kubrick film, though. Honestly. So there you go. Yeah. And See, I, the, I, I know the shining, the shining isn't even in my. It's probably in my top five Kubrick. And films and I I love I love I love Kubrick, but I probably have the unpopular opinion of saying that Shining is my favorite of his, uh, just because I probably I don't know I I read a lot into that film that's probably not even there, but <laughs> that's just me personally. Um, I think that's probably one we should cover on the podcast thing because I would love to yeah. chat about that sometime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I mean, if you were going with Alfred Hitchcock or Francis Ford Coppola, I'd fucking pit, pick Hitchcock in a fucking heartbeat yeah. because yeah. Coppola, I mean, Coppola made some really great films, but he really didn't do all that much. His I sh- mean, what would we do without Dementia 5, really? Like, <laughs> or yeah. Dementia 13, you mean? Yeah. Dementia 13, excuse me. I, there's no, one Dementia 5, Dementia 5 is what he would have made otherwise. Well, <laughs> with, that, with, that's me, if, with me that's growing if, up, I just can't get into any kind of mobster movie at all. And there's some people that say that those movies are the best probably movies ever made, and I just I can't see it. Yeah, the the Godfather stuff like it's really great, but I mean it's they're, they're honestly for me they're not films I revisit or really give a shit about. No, Hitchcock or Coppola, there's no question. Hitchcock is a much more influential and important filmmaker than Coppola. Coppola's I don't have anything I don't have an issue with The Godfather, but like ultimately Coppola's career is The Godfather Part One and Two, a couple other things. He was just there in the seventies when Scorsese was there and when, you know, Spielberg was there and when Altman was kind of making his best stuff. And he was just kinda of in that crowd and he made some great movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, the conversation I think is his, is that right? Yeah, I can't Blowout is De Palma, I think. You know, but ultimately Coppola just kind of—I don't know—he just kind of—he petered out after a while. Um, if you kill him, you probably kill um, Sophia Coppola. You yeah. kill Sophia Coppola. 
and you kill uh, the Vernon suicides, and you kill um, lots in translation. Lots which, in translation, which is the only thing I would honestly. That's the only thing I. I actually value that more than the Godfather movies, Lost in uh, Translation. I, I, so, I, I, I might agree with you, Lee. I might agree with you. Yeah, I, I would. I would kill. Co- I would kill Coppola because then maybe uh, the Sopranos would have never happened. So that would be great. <laughs> I I actually think Goodfellas is a bigger influence on the Sopranos than the Godfather. It is. Quite it honestly. really is. Anything to kill the Sopranos, and I would be happy. So. Um, <laughs> Actually, well, I mean, yeah. Obviously, you kill Coppola. I actually think that the Kubrick versus Hitchcock one is more interesting. It is. Yeah. I think. I and think I, it would have, would have been better if I would have looked at at Kubrick as a in a broader sense, and I've been like, yeah, that would have been a better pick. But I was thinking of The Shining automatically because that's my favorite, and I'm like, well, if you kill Alfred, you kill The Shining too, and I think so. Yeah. But actually, that probably would have been a good one to be asked to me because then I would have all been pissed off. So <laughs> I would I would have to keep Kubrick in that case actually I would kill Hitch- I would kill Hitchcock twice tonight man that's crazy oh wow yeah. he is double dead son I I'll, I'll just say uh, Dementia Five that is like the ultra cheap Robert Corbin who didn't give him any money to work with that that would have been that film <laughs> he couldn't uh, even afford the extra eight oh my god <laughs> I couldn't afford an extra numeral for the title sequence that's how cheap this movie was. Yeah, we're 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 not we're not using any any of our previous sets. We're just gonna build some paper mache shit. Yep, and that's all that's happening. Not, D- Dementia, Dementia Five is the remake of Dementia. Th- it's the ripoff. It's the Italian ripoff of Dementia Thirteen. That's yeah. The, I wonder um, if there's actually anybody who actually went through like a cutting room floor and picked up stuff and made a movie that way. Like oh, I was just laying around. Oh, yeah. they, that, that was called that was called Oasis of the Zombies, right? Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. No, but there there are uh, directors who worked under Corman, who took footage from films that were previously made that just basically cut out of those films. Like he he's notorious for people taking reused film stock from uh, films that have premiered. So you see the same scenes in certain films of Corman productions. But there's also instances where filmmakers have just taken shit that just dumped on the fucking cutting room floor. And incorporated that into their movies. So, like, that's how fucking cheap Corman was. Like, uh, as as much as people sort of applaud Corman, and so he's a maverick, and he's this great visionary. So, well, no, no, not really. He's this guy who cut budgets to the extreme, exploited talent. Uh, mm-hmm. He he definitely developed a lot of great talent, and a lot of great talent flourished out of his production company and went on to do great stuff. But working under Corman was literally, oh, here's some fucking rolls of film sitting on the dirty floor somewhere. Let's stick that into our movie to pad it out because we don't have a budget because Corman won't give us any fucking money. Right. So, well, yeah. I watched Humanoids of the Deep and I was really surprised when I found Corman had a hand in it because it looked like the monsters looked so good it looks like you had to spend money on them. And there, I'm like, were, how, how, how did this happen? He did spend money on them and that was one of the films where he actually had like a female director in the start and then replaced her because he wanted to stick in more like monster rape and she wasn't yeah. all for that. <laughs> That's the best part of the film. <laughs> Fish monster rape. Fish so, monster rape. Yeah. It was it was like it just reminded me of like the doom that came to Sarnoth kind of stuff. It was pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. Or the shadow over Innsmall. Or the shadow yeah, the shadow the shadow over Innsmouth, yeah. Yeah. Uh Corman Corman is uh say what you will about him. Uh there's some great things about him, but he was a fucking cheapskate and 
a lot of people sort of basically worked as slaves under him for little or no pay and under really bad conditions. So, so uh, I'll, I'll throw one out here. Uh, I guess I'll probably throw it more to Daniel uh, than Paul, but my movie god choice for this week is you have to eliminate one of these two actors, and these are two sort of prominent British actors who, one of them's, you know, a bit older than the other, but they both sort of came to stardom in the sort of same period. And you have to eliminate, sir, either Sean Connery or Michael Caine. Oh, son of a bitch. That's a that's a good one. You know what? I'm not even I'm not even really gonna discuss this one. I'm just gonna kill Sean Connery because okay. I'd be fascinated to see what would happen to the Bond series without him. But I like him as Bond. You know? He's my favorite Bond. And I like him in other crap that he's been in, unfortunately. I mean he, I even liked him in The Rock. He's a, um, he's a great he's a great actor. Like I, I think yeah. you know he's but I, he, I really uh, like Michael Caine. I love Dress to Kill. I like Michael Caine a lot. Without Sean Connery, would Bond have even happen? You know, that, well, that's a, I think that's well, a reasonable here's, question. Well, here's, a, here's the question. Would Christopher Lee have become Bond at that point? Because he was originally one that Ian Fleming wanted for Bond. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it, I don't know. I mean, it seemed like they stepped on Ian Fleming's toes every, time so they, every chance they could mm. at the same time, though. But if they didn't have a Sean Connery to pick from... Would they have probably relented and gone with Christopher? Well, they Lee did. They, well, the thing is, they got rid of Sean Connery then and picked some guy just because they thought he was, you know, the right style and he was. A, it was a crap film. Well, so, yeah. even without Sean Connery, suppose Christopher Lee becomes Bond and kills people with his. Well, teeth. and and become and has you know one movie or two movies that don't. Sean Connery was Bond. It's not the Bond character was. Sold by Sean Connery. Yeah, I mean, I mean like Bond didn't die because Sean Connery wasn't and it, there. And, it, and it's not, and it's not that there was. Uh, it's not just the Bond franchise. It's everything that came from it, you know. Yeah. And, and this like whole, you know, two decades of film were basically just Bond, you know, ripoffs for for a long time. And uh, I don't know. Like it's hard for me to think what the Michael Caine performance. Like what do I think of when I think of the Michael Caine? But I think it's almost more interesting to keep him than it is to keep Sean Connery. Like it's it's you know well, I feel the like Ita- the Italian job, right? Was he in the Italian? Job? You get the Italian yeah. job. You get get Carter. You get um, Carter dressed to kill. You get yeah. Uh, you uh you well here's the thing. If you kill one or the other, you don't get the man who would be king, which is one of my favorite all time movies. I actually haven't is, seen that film. That is a fantastic fucking great. Fucking film, and I think that's the only film that those two actually appear together in. Th- those two are like kind of best friends as well, but uh, that's like the only film they did together, I think. And if you if you do if you kill Michael Caine, you don't get uh, which you don't is get Alfie. Uh, you don't get Alfie. You don't get it's either Jaws of Revenge. Jo- <laughs> well, well, oh, no, I actually like I actually like Jaws of Revenge quite a bit. That's my <laughs> my actually second favorite Jaws movie. Hold on, if you don't, if you kill Michael Caine, then Sean Connery is in the third Austin Powers movie, and therefore, yes. we should then kill Michael Caine because how brilliant would that be? You know? Yeah, that would damn, that would be something. That would be something. But the uh, damn Belgians. Um, no, I don't know. Was was Sean Connery the retired? The Dutch. The Dutch. Was, Dutch. was, was Sean but, Connery retired by then? Because. Uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen was his last no, no. film. Sean Connery wouldn't have retired if Michael Caine didn't uh, exist. Sean Connery would have just taken all the Michael Caine roles. That's yeah. the uh, that's the way that works. Oh, geez. Well, then he would have been in like Blood and Wine with Jack Nicholson. Yeah. 
As that would have been kill Michael Caine. You get to you don't get to hear a guy go. I'm Batman. You know, you said that's all gone. The Batman <laughs> franchise is gone. Revitalization, which spawned all this, you know, hero movie remake stuff. So yeah, he would have been an interesting Alfred, wouldn't he? Fuck, Michael Caine wouldn't have been in uh, what's it, uh, Sleuth with uh, Laurence Olivier. Yeah, which yeah. is another great film, one of my favorite films. And I don't know if I could get rid of. I don't know if I could get rid of that film. Honestly, Sleuth and the Man Who Would Be King. See that that way, I can't eliminate either one of them. And I'm glad I'm asking the question. I don't have to actually answer the question. I I think I think I keep Michael Caine, even even though I think that there are some great Sean Connery performances. I just I would be fascinated to see what happens to the Bond franchise without Sean Connery. I think it becomes more interesting without Sean Connery. And here, and here's the question: If Sean Connery wasn't around, would Michael Caine be in Zardos, which is what we're going to cover later this month? <laughs> no, it would have been Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> Anthony Hopkins in a red diaper. Well, awesome. Who would, who would who would be the Highlander though? That's the question. Oh shit! Oh, that would have been Michael Caine. Yeah, Michael yeah. Caine uh, playing a Cockney Spaniard. That yeah. could be only one, mate. <laughs> Oh, you fucking fuck, dude. You <laughs> fucking bastard. No, it would have been Liam Neeson. That's, that's who it would have been. Oh, yeah, Liam Neeson, yeah. Dark man. Liam Neeson. If you don't cut his head man. off, I will find you and I will kill you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what the hell. I'll kill Sean Connery, too. That sounds All right. Uh, Sean Connery, you're dead to us, sir. So, uh, yeah, movie god. There you go, guys. So we will now go to our main event. Uh, this is a film Daniel picked, and this is Vampiros Lesbos. Bestialische Morde im Dunkeln des modernen Istanbuls. Jene geheimnisvollen, jahrtausende alten Stadt im Orient. Eine gewagte und harte Verfilmung des alten Dracula-Themas, dessen Erbe Schrecken, Entsetzen und Grauen bedeutet. Eine gnadenlose, tödliche Jagd. Gleichzeitig erregt dieser Traum mich auch. Ich bin mehr als einmal schon dabei zum Orgasmus gekommen. Rätsel über Rätsel in einem Film voller Spannung und Sex. Ich habe lange keine Zeit mehr gehabt, so in der Sonne zu liegen. Es macht Spaß, nackt im Sand zu liegen. Besonders zu zweit, finden Sie nicht auch? Sie versuchen mir Linda wegzunehmen. Aber warum kommen Sie dann hierher? Weil du in dieser Stunde sterben wirst. Ein blutiger Weg. Voller grauenhafter Entdeckungen. Oh. 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 
Frauen im Banne des unheimlichen Erbes und uralten Fluches des Grafen Dracula. And I'll take it over. Let it over, let it go over to you, Daniel, to describe the plot and get us started. Ooh. I think we should make Paul describe the plot first. All right, here we go. Here we go. A uh, a blonde lady working overseas um, has uh, disturbing sexual dreams that she can't understand. She goes to her thing. She gets uh, basically inheritance uh, problems, so she has to go check out some problem in an island owned by Count Dracula. Finds a vampire, gets ensued in her web, and tries to fight to stay alive. Dot com. Bye. Actually, that's a fairly uh... that's a that's a very good summary of the first third of the film. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what are you gonna do? <laughs> <laughs> so so basically, uh, this is a sort of a third uh, kind of German Spanish art film, a third extended uh, lesbian sex sequences, and a third people talking randomly in doctor's offices with occasional <laughs> violence. That's sort of the, yeah. uh, the the strategy of this film. You know, Paul Paul isn't wrong. He he describes very very accurately the the basic structure of the film. What I really admired about this was, uh, and I and I did enjoy this film. I, I actually found it referenced in a uh, feminist magazine article where I was I was reading about um, queer cinema and I'm going to talk a little bit about that when we get more into the themes of the film you know I saw it referenced in particular the the lead character uh, played by Miranda Soledad um, who mm -hmm. I was I was definitely kind of like well this is something I need to see and so I mentioned it to uh, to Lee hey can we cover this film and he goes sure whatever you know I'm yeah. like look lesbian vampires I think we're all going to be on board with like a 1971 <laughs> yeah, film from you know Germany called Les you know lesbian vampires yes we're down no problem I think what what struck me was the visual style of the film I think yeah. it, it definitely has these kind of uh long sequences of kind of not a lot going on structurally. I think it's it's definitely... I mean, there are some issues with this film, but I think ultimately it works in what it attempts to do in that it, it kind of takes these basic elements of, yes, it's made on a low budget, yes, it's made in a few weeks, yes, it's uh, basically just a delivery system for a little bit of blood and some tits, but at the same time, it's uh, very artistically made. It's, very, it's made with an eye towards direction. There are some really interesting themes going on. And it's got really interesting characters, and I'm gonna, I think I'm going to dig into that a little bit more as we talk about it more. But uh, I really enjoyed this film. Uh, I liked it a lot. I thought visually this is probably one of Franco's best, best films. Uh, honestly, I haven't seen a lot of his early stuff. Like I, I, I saw his Dracula, which preceded this, which was uh, pretty good. I've seen a couple of his other films from this period, but uh, for the most part, most of the stuff I've seen was like his later sort of skin flicks and stuff which were overtly more sleazy and just like no plot at all or whatever but so it was kind of surprising to see a film from him that actually had a plot and actually had like decent camera angles and <laughs> actual direction thought to direction I mean, this this is extremely well directed for what it is mm -hmm. I mean, there, there's no question this this is an i mean franco was uh kind of co-director on Charms of midnight with uh, orson wells mm -hmm. and i didn't I kind of realized that until I started kind of looking into him a little bit more, and I'm like, you see Wells's influence in this. Like this, this is this is a this is not like a cheap knockoff piece of crap. Yeah. The way you know, 
at least so the zombies was <laughs> yeah. and Tommy Lake was to a lesser degree. I mean, this is a film. This is some somebody like actively trying to make something that's that's visually dynamic and interesting. Yeah, this so, is sort yeah. of this sort of when Franco still gave a shit before he uh, this sort of became this like director for hire running around Europe and different places making whatever low-budget shit that he can get money for, right? It really shows, like, he actually has some visual style here. Like, there's the scene with, after Miranda first encounters um, the lead character, uh, what's her name? Uh, the first first time Linda shows up at her place, like, and essentially, just, just to spell this out for people, this is essentially a retelling of Dracula, but yeah. instead, instead, of, instead of a male seducing women... This is a lesbian plot, so it's a woman seducing with, yeah, she with was, women. She, Dracula oh, saved her from being raped and murdered by men, so now she hates men, even though a man saved her, which is contradicting. But at the same time, she wants woman mouth pussy love. Yeah, and that's I, kind I of appreciate a, that. That's kind of a weird idea of a, a man raped me, so now I turn into a lesbian. But, you know, that's kind of a weird... It, it's kind of interesting. Like it, it does basically follow Dracula structurally fairly closely to some degree. Doc, I like the Doctor Seward. I'm like, hey, Doctor Seward, cool. Hmm. But like, uh, uh, vi visually, uh, the first time that uh, Linda and she, essentially she's um, the Harker character, and at the same time Harker's wife. Essentially, like it, it's like a combination of a couple different characters. Like a lot of the characters here, are like combinations of. Uh, the original characters from the uh, Bram Stoker uh, novel. Linda, the, she goes to this uh, remote island to go over some inheritance stuff with uh, the vampire. She doesn't know she's a vampire, but she gets seduced. After she is seduced and basically starts to become enthralled uh, to this vampire, there's a scene where she's uh, the vampire is laying in the pool and she thinks she's dead mm -hmm. because she has that red scarf around her neck. And it looks like maybe it's blood pulling out into the water. Like, uh, visually, I thought that was really well done. It looked really nice. I really like that fucking room that has those red tassels coming out, there, out of there's the... There's a lot of really interesting, like, set design. And, like you, mm. you, like, you look at a film this cheap and you go, that can't... Like, they can't have built that. Like, that had to have been there. But they chose to use it in the way they did. The way that scarves are used, and particularly the colors of the scarves that are used... I mean, mm -hmm. there, there's a really intense kind of visual color dynamic that I find really yeah, fascinating. And a lot of vibrant stuff. It reminded me of some films like uh, some of the other films like Color Me Blood Red and, and things where they had a lot of vibrant atmosphere for like in the 60s and stuff. That's what it reminded me of a little bit. <laughs> you know what the sets remind me of, Daniel? Uh, the film we did a little while ago, uh, The Libertine, reminded me of like this. this <laughs> I, was, I was definitely thinking... I was definitely thinking of the Libertine um, a couple of times when uh, not only this one, but uh, she kills in ecstasy, which we'll cover uh, down the line. Yeah, so yeah. There, there, there are some definite uh, similarities. We'll just leave it at that. But um, yeah, yeah. yeah, no, it's uh, and it comes out of that same kind of mentality. I mean, this is this is um, you know early seventies. It is kind of during the height of the sexual revolution. This is you know something that is intended to be consumed by young audiences. It's intended to be salacious, both in terms of its violence and in terms of its uh, sexual content. But it's also intended to reach out in, in some kind of way and reflect the audience that it's that it's exploiting, you know? Mm -hmm. The idea of um, making films that have lesbian subtext, I mean, yes, there's a male gaze element to it. There, there's no question that there's a male gaze element to this. But at the same time, you know, for uh, young ladies, young queer ladies at the time, this was perhaps the only, you know, like, cinematic 
version of yourself that you saw ever. And you know, could you for, have could you have picked more attractive women for this fucking film? Holy shit. They all are like supermodel quality. Like I mean, Miranda Soledad in particular, I mean I was I was uh, really struck by her. It's ironic. Did you look her up at all? Do you know anything else about her? I, I did. Uh, fortunately, she she died. She, shortly. she died literally months after this film was. Yeah, made. and um, she was about to be. Actually, she was about to be one of uh, Jess Franco's big stars. She was about to sign a multi-deal contract, and she was actually on the way to Jess Franco's place to sign the contract when she died in a tragic car accident. So I mean, I can I can imagine her being like another Raquel Welch. Had she not died, like at that moment, I think. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, and then we were forced upon her replacement for the rest of his career, and she's and his replacement is definitely not as attractive. What's your What's your name, Romay? Uh, I know her name, but I can't think of it. But yeah, like she was in Female Vampire, because I always thought this film was Female Vampire with a different title at first, until I actually got a chance to see it. Well, this film was actually uh, remade in like the '80s by Franco uh, mm-hmm. as like Mumbo Sexual or something like that. It was called. Uh, mm-hmm. It was it, it was uh, remade, and then it was also remade in the 2000s as well as under a different title. Uh, 2004, Chlamyra, uh, lesbian vampire. Chlamyria. Um, uh, maybe I, I don't know. I, I was reading up on it, and I should have put it in my actual notes, but uh, yeah, it, it was it was remade a couple times. Don't beat yourself up. You actually watched it. Yeah. <laughs> Soledad Miranda, she's really good in this. She's very stunning. Uh, she's got that kind of... Um, she's got that really sexy 70s look to her. Like, she just... You look at her and you go, yeah, that's a really sexy model from the 1970s. Like, a, just, like, overtly. The performances are kind of art house and sort of stilted in a way. You know, they're kind of cold. But I think yeah. they work really well because uh, the whole film is presented in sort of a kind of a dream logic kind of atmosphere to a certain degree. So that kind of works for that. You know, everyone feels like they're walking around in a fucking trance for most of the right. film. It didn't bother me too much. I, I thought it worked pretty well. It flowed pretty well. The boyfriend of the main character, Linda, is a little... Uh, he needed to dump that mustache. <laughs> he really needed to dump that fucking mustache. He couldn't dump the mustache back, but maybe it was all about the mustache. But back. but look at look at his hair. He's over obviously overcompensating with his hair for his mustache because he couldn't grow a real mustache. That was. <laughs> you mentioned the um, dreamlike quality of the film, mm-hmm. and I, I absolutely uh, that, that I think that's one of the keys to the film because there is a certain and I think this gets overused. I think in modern films and pushed too hard the kind of was it real or was it fantasy element, mm-hmm. and I think it really works in this film, right. because um, I think they do push too hard on it at the end. I think that they, you know, oh no, that was just a dream, sweetie. Right. Uh, where I, I don't think it worked at the end, but I think that there is this sense of like, because like Linda kind of shows up and she's like, oh, there's this uh, beautiful woman and she's sitting by the pool and she goes, oh, do you want to go swimming? And then suddenly we're swimming naked and then suddenly we're making out and everything and it's like, this, mm-hmm. this it simultaneously feels like a, a fantasy. It feels kind of like a nightmare. It feels kind of like a uh, there's a, uh, a wet dream dangerous element to it. But there's also like, well, it's also well, I'm being paid to go and like cater to this rich bitch and like take care of her estate, mm-hmm. and like my job would just kind of be to go and do whatever she wants to do, sort of thing, you know. And if that means kind of going and swimming for a while, and then, like, oh, you're attractive, and, you know, that's, like, there's an element of where, like, I kind of believe in 1971 in Turkey, 
among the, the, the wealthy class that this is not exactly unexpected behavior. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, and... It, it also sort of follows a sort of uh, line of most vampire fiction to a certain degree where the idea of the vampire being the seducer and exploiting repressed sexual desires. There's a flip side to this because the, the vampire actually becomes obsessed with her victim mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. and actually falls in love with Linda, which I think is a really interesting inversion of this concept in a lot of ways. Yeah. Because then it suddenly becomes about Linda and about her kind of agency and about that sort of thing. And it almost becomes a battle of wills and a kind of a battle of like who's going to kind of reign supreme in this relationship sort of thing um, as the film goes on. And um, I really like that element of it. Again, one of the things that kind of got me into this is talking about kind of queer characters in, in cinema, um, particularly queer women. Uh, which so much had to be kind of implied but not said. Um, this does mm. date back to the 30s. That that article I posted to you uh, did kind of, kind of start 36 yeah. uh, talking about these kinds of things. This has always existed. It's just kind of always been implied. Um, and then here to, to kind of be able to do it for real, there is this kind of sense in which queer women had no representation on screen except for villains. And so, like, is it better to have well, we have representation, but it's the bad guy. I mean, this is a legitimately evil character, but it's also someone who looks like me. And I think that there is that that kind of... The sense that the men in the film are terrified of female sexuality and that the female sexuality is represented through supernatural uh, qualities mm-hmm. is absolutely something that's going on here. I mean, there there's a moment where the um, one of the, the older male doctors is literally standing over a woman in the throes of kind of sexual torture, agony, pleasure... And just not understanding what's going on, like yeah. <laughs> you know, and she's, it, and she's it, crazy. She's she's, she's she's obviously suffering from hysteria. No, yeah, she's fucking having a continual orgasm for like the last forty hours, dude. Like, and that's actually my favorite know. character in the film, uh, Agra or whatever her name is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. She's she's great. Yeah, she's the she's a mental patient. She's like a former sort of like I guess quote unquote victim of the vampire who's yeah, in right. the in the in the uh, mental uh, house, mental hospital, whatever it is. Actually, I think she's actually the best actress in the film because she does a great job to basically just presenting herself. And she sort of substitutes as, like, the Renfield in the, fi- yeah, in the film. She's definitely the Renfield of the film. I thought about that as you were talking about it. I'm like, holy shit, she's Renfield. That's amazing. You know, yeah, like... yeah. She's a former victim of the vampire. Uh, the vampire actually still has feelings for her and is still connected to her. Like, she comes to her later in the film and says, I have to leave you now. Because, you know, I've, I found Linda, so I'm, I'm going to go for Linda. But, you know, she she doesn't say that, but she's like, i got to leave you now. And But there's this, like, implied psychic connection between her and the vampire throughout the film. And then you get the same thing with Linda and the vampire. And the, a lot of the dream sequence stuff that Linda sees, is it's implied that, you know, some of it is the sort of the psychic connection and it's how she interprets it or whatever. I think it's really well done. Like, there's a lot more going on in this film than people give it credit for. Like, it, it, it's it's actually fairly a, a lot deeper, I think, in a lot of ways, visually. And I just, I really actually kind of enjoyed it. I was watching, I was like, wow, this is way better than I thought it was going to be. Because I'm just, I'm, I'm familiar with Franco's really crap films. And, and it's like, this film actually has characters, actually has an idea, it actually has a plot. It's not super fucking sleazy. Not that I hate super fucking sleazy. I appreciate sleazy. I like freeze sleazy fucking Franco stuff. 
But this one is pretty dialed back for him. Uh, two women kissing and caressing each other, and probably the most salacious thing in the film is uh, the vampire, who is, by the way, she's like a... At night, she does like a cabaret act, where she goes to this club in Istanbul, and she does this uh, sort of... It's not quite a... Well, it is a strip tease, but it's like she takes her clothes off and puts it on another woman who's pretending to be a mannequin. I thought that was pretty good. I thought that was pretty sexy. It's definitely performance art. Yeah, it was pretty sexy. I liked it. Yeah, you know, if you if you if you pretend it's art, I mean, and this is like it was like there were this was the time period where there were you know plenty of people kind of doing performance art that was really just like we need to do we want to be sexual we want to express sexuality. We want to do it in a way that is acceptable to mainstream audiences. And what I think is really fascinating about the dance sequences is that they, they do represent kind of where she is in her head at the at the moment. But also, you see lots of shots of the audience, which is largely consumed of uh, middle-aged men yeah. who are the perceived audience for the film. You, you know yeah. what I mean? Like it's a, bunch, it's a bunch of dudes sitting around and watching pretty girls take their clothes off. And I, I do think uh, that there's a there's a, a self reflexive quality to this that is that is kind of interesting. By the way, I got a question. Like Omar, he's with Linda, and you know, he's her he's her boyfriend, and he's like, yeah, I'm I'm into you and all that shit. I, I just kind of kind of wonder why he's taking her to like a lesbian cabaret show. <laughs> I, I I don't like. I mean, you know, he he's trying to pr- he's trying to prove that he's a modern male of the 1970s. It's, it's, I, it's uh, art, man. Look at this. How well, deep I well, it if if nothing proves that, it, it, it's his fucking mustache. Jesus Christ, because you know, but <laughs> Jesus, like Omar, dude. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know, sir. I don't know. The only I sad mean, thing, I, I heard the uh, Jess Franco said that the only thing he liked about the film was uh, uh, Miranda and her, her the, the atmosphere that surrounds her in the film. The rest of the film he thought was shit. He was well, really he, disappointed well, with the film. That's his opinion, but he's wrong. But uh, Obje- he, uh, and I, I think he's objectively wrong as well. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, but, uh, I was like, say, you were in the film. Shouldn't you glorify your own role? I think she does a great job playing it cold, where it actually works really well for her as a vampire character. The, the scene where she first uh, encounters Linda, like, she drugs Linda, puts her in a guest room, and then the scene where she pulls back the curtain and she's got a little bit of blood coming down her chin, and I thought that was a really striking scene. I think that worked really well. Mm-hmm. And it, it feels like also the Miranda character, she kind of has this sort of tragic bent to her, where... It almost feels like she wants to die. Like she wants to pass. She almost wants to pass on her vampirism to uh, Linda and die. So uh, there's also that sort of component to it. What are your guys' thoughts on uh, Jess Franco doing a cameo here as the sort of the skeezy uh, bellboy in the hotel? Who uh, I, I've seen him. I've seen him do cameo before, and I think he does a very good skeezy bellboy act. Yeah. Well, 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 what what do you think? Uh, you didn't get that far in the, into the film, Paul, but uh, it turns out he is actually the husband of the uh, girl in the mental ward, who was the previous victim of the vampire. Mm. And uh, I I found that kind of kind of unbelievable. I was kind of oh, thinking like, there, there's he, no way this hot blonde was going for this. Uh, yeah, he had to give himself some props in the film, you know. Well, well, this this was this is this is basically author insert fantasy of uh, yeah. 
you know, I'm a middle-aged man who's kind of dorky and has big glasses, and therefore I get to sleep with the hottest woman. All of the uh, men in the picture, in, in both pictures that I watched from this director, are uh, fucking these way out of their league women. I say this as a man who gets women out of his league on a regular basis. Like, there's no question oh, it happens, rag. you know. Um, you know, I'm just saying that... Uh, there, there is, there is a certain like element of a wish fulfillment for the director here. Um, and just wait till you see his cameo, and she killed an ecstasy. I'm just gonna leave it at that. All right, uh, right, right. I mean, uh, Daniel's a sex god, but for Lee and I, any woman is out of our way. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah. I always consider it the Rob Tappard syndrome. Because uh, I remember hearing when he was doing Army of Darkness, he was he was saying get all excited and be like, I want girls in in chains getting getting drug around, yeah, and I want that. And then Sam was just like, shut up, shut up, shut up, <laughs> the whole time. No, I want more girls, and they got to naked, and they chains. And he gets all excited. Then he made Zena. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then he got then he made Zena and all. Of then his and then he made Zena. <laughs> hold on, were we talking about lesbians in television again? Hold on. Yeah, there it is. Bing, 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 bing. There was no lesbianism in that. Renee, oh, Renee. Come on, they were just taking a bath together. That was innocent. With their tongues. Yeah, no. Uh, but yeah, I, I think I think Frank like Franco made a point of doing these sort of characters in a lot of his films. Like he just sort of uh, inserted himself into them. And actually, I think he works pretty well in this film. Uh, like I said, in, in some cases, some of the characters combine two characters. In this case, it's like a character split into two parts. Uh, you have my favorite uh, character, uh, Agra, in the mental uh, hospital. She's part Renfield, and he's also part Renfield. He's yeah, also got, nuts. I so. got a little bit of a Renfield vibe from him when I first saw him in the, in the film. Yeah, so it's and he's like insane. He lost his wife to the mental hospital, and he's like murdering women now and shit like that. And in in the fucking wine cellar, I don't know how he quite gets ro gets away with it. Like apparently the owner of the hotel never goes down to the fucking wine cellar because he keeps that body of that one woman throughout the whole film in the fucking wine cellar. But hey, whatever. No, apparently no one likes wine in that fucking hotel. Yeah, Have you ever had Turkish wine? It's horrible. Um, apparently it must be bad, but it's really bad, fucking bad. But they had big vats of it down there, so you know, whatever. But yeah, I, I think it, I think he uh, he added a nice, like, little sort of uh, it was kind of a hint of future things to come for his films, where they got more sleazy and stuff. But he added like a nice little sleazy element to the film, and I mm -hmm. think it worked pretty well. What do you think of the way he ends the film? It kind of falls apart to a certain degree. Like it, it doesn't. It, it kind of feels like, okay, we have to come up with an ending for this. I like the idea that a woman is, is you know, the, the vampire is now, like, in trouble, needs her help, and then she decides to say no, you know, and, but uh, stab her in the eye just in case. Yeah, well, well it's, it's kind of weird because sort of goes away from the vampire myth to a certain degree. Well, if you if you view the the real vampirism, and I'm making air quotes here on a podcast, but uh, you know, <laughs> if you if you view the vampirism, if you view the supernatural elements as representing what the uh, what people were scared of, which I mean, the, the lesbianism, the the idea that women have sexual agency and like desire things that are not inarticulate men grunting on top of them uh, horribly. Uh, in terms of their sexual experience, <laughs> you know, th this this kind of budding female sexuality being something that it, that people are scared of, and that kind of being the essence of what the vampirism is and represented in the film. What you're seeing is that since Eva 
is the um, Linda, excuse me, Linda is the now the one who is being desired. She has the vampiric quality, right? Mm -hmm. So she is able to to bite and to kill and to to essentially take the power away from uh, the Miranda character, which I. There's some really interesting stuff with appearances and disappearances and the way that certain victims appear and disappear and the way that Miranda appears in a certain sequence and that sort of thing. Like, mm-hmm. the way some of the supernatural powers work, there's some imagery going on there that I'm not sure is intentional and I'm not sure I completely understand, but is kind of fascinating. I mean, I definitely think there's a level of this film that I we're just not prepared to talk about right now. Like, I just, I really want to go through and take notes on this. Like, this is this is definitely, there's some really interesting stuff going on. So Probably. before you expand on that, to go back to the, the, uh, the, you know, the vampire, say, stereotypes of what they can and can't do, much like va- uh, lesbians, vampires burst into flames when they go into the sun. And that didn't happen in this film, so we have Well, the thing about this is, like, I think it pulls more from the actual, like, Bram Stoker text to a certain degree. Right. Uh, where Dracula actually could walk out in the sun. Right. And uh, I think they imply here that Miranda Soledad's vampire character is essentially in- inherited uh, Dracula's lord over vampires, I guess. Like, she is, like, the prime vampire to some degree. So she can, you know, walk out in the sun. Like She's the alpha vampire. Yeah, and so, you know... So that's very very convenient for, you know, her to uh, romp out in the sun to some, like, uh, 60s psychedelia music and, and, you know, not burn to death. (laughs) <laughs> did anyone, when she was out there and the music was going, did anyone want to scream Austin Powers and like a yeah, baby, yeah? Kind well, of, I was thinking, uh, I was thinking either Austin Powers or, uh, or uh, Annette Funicello and Frankie yeah, Avalon well, Beach Party movies, right? Well, there, there's definitely, I mean, did you did you know that like they actually re-released this soundtrack in 1995? Yes, yes. And yeah. a track, there's a track from this that's used in Jackie Brown. Like, I was, uh, well, you already spoiled it for me because that's the one I'm going to use for the end of the podcast yeah. because I, I was going to ask you, Daniel, did you catch that track in that film? Because... I, I, I actually didn't catch it. I didn't catch it. Because I've seen Jackie Brown a bunch, mm-hmm. and I was sitting and I was watching this, and I did not catch it. I need to, I need to sit and watch it again just to. It uh, is, it is. It's, I, I will just uh, spoil it for you. It is the scene where Ordell is uh, sitting in his house, and he is uh, smoking up some pot, and he is sitting there, and the scene basically focuses focuses on him pondering how everything could have fucking gone wrong to this point. That song builds up and builds up and builds up in the background, and it, it works really well. And that's going to be the fucking end track, by the way. Spoilers for the fucking it's, podcast. It's nice, it's nice that you brought that up, because as Daniel said, he, he was reading about this movie uh, in a magazine, right? Was that recently, or...? Yeah, no, no. I, it was uh, it was actually on uh, Bitch Media. Uh, a, it was on it was on the website for a uh, feminist. Website. I read I read feminist magazines one handed. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that was really funny because in 1995 is when I I actually read the breakdown of the soundtrack and like a little review of the like, quick review of the movie. It was in uh, it was in Playboy. Slightly different, but uh, oh, no, not at all. That's how long it's been since I've actually I've known about it, but uh, sadly I've never actually seen it where I could actually own it. I've never actually seen it to buy. It, 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 the whole soundtrack is on YouTube. Uh, the whole the music was done by Franco himself and oh. Manfred Hubler and uh, Siggy Schwab. 
And actually, Franco, like, a lot of people don't know, he did a lot of shit. Like, he was not just a director, he was a producer. He did a lot of makeup. He did, actually did the makeup effects for this film. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, he did the music for this film. He did the music for other films. He, he has a lot of production credits. Like, if you look at his IMDb, he has an extensive fucking list of uh, production credits, uh, second director credits, stuff like mm-hmm. that. Like, just tons of shit. Like, this, this guy was not a fucking hack. I mean, no, uh, no. Like, I mean, I mean, watching this film, watching any random ten minutes of this film, you know he's not a hack. Now maybe yeah. he became a hack later, yeah. or maybe he just decided, you know what, they'll pay me the same either way. Like I mm-hmm. get that. Like this is just my job. Oh, you gave me four dollars, and here's a third of the movie I'm gonna use, <laughs> you know, recycled footage for because yeah. fuck you, I don't care anymore. Yeah. But this is a real filmmaker, and this is this yeah. is somebody who. Uh, Certainly, on the basis of this film, I, I was I was absolutely interested in exploring more of his work, and I and I will, um, whether we do him on the show or not. Um, I do. Uh, this, this film does remind me a little bit of uh, Ed Wood's Necromania. Necromania. Remember that film? Did you ever see that one? Uh, it's basically that... a, a porn film that is wrapped around a uh, an occult kind of a horror film at the same is that, time. Is that the one where they're in the woods and they're all dancing and shit? No, that's the, they're in a they're in a, man, in a mansion. They're in a mansion. Oh, okay. I haven't seen that one. There's a man who actually, a, a witch, who, a man who actually transfers into a female, and then uh, and then seduces people and sucks their energy out of them. But it's a. Uh, oh. It reminds me of the film has little noirs. I actually thought when I first started watching this film, the kind of shipyard kind of ocean scenes was reminding me of Zombie, the beginning of Zombie, a little bit, just for a second. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's pretty. Pretty fun. Uh, I like uh, uh, Jess Franco. I actually especially like him when he teams up with Gene Rowland and makes films. The, the teamwork films they do together are really good. Uh, n- but not so much the ones where it's like Franco starts and then Gene Rowland takes over the film because Franco's like, I don't have enough money to make this film good. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, what was it? It was either Zomb- it was Zombie Lake. That no, was zombie, that... It was Zombie Lake. I have that on VHS too. I didn't that, was, that was the one where he jumped out at the beginning. Yeah. After the beginning yeah. yeah. But, but I do like a lot of the films that they do together. Can we talk about the setting just a little bit? Mm-hmm. That's shot in Turkey. Looks gorgeous. Yeah. Um, I I just uh, I w- I really admire the uh, the use of the photography and the use of the uh, the setting. It just kind of adds to that like otherworldliness to it. You know, you don't quite know where it's set at first until you're kind of told. Just to add in there for a sec, the fact that it's done in Turkey actually sort of goes back to the original Bram Stoker text where I've, I've seen some contrary evidence lately. Stoker did not base his stuff on uh, Vlad Tepish. Um, if you go by the conventional understanding that Vlad Tepish was the uh, inspiration for Dracula... He was the guy who was fighting the Turks in that mm-hmm. region, and he was your inspiration for Dracula. So in Istanbul, uh, Turkey, uh, it's set in the sort of region where that story originated from, if you uh, believe that uh, that was the inspiration for Bram Stoker's text, and so, I think that works very well for the movie. Well, yeah. Constantinople. They might well, be then we have to end on Istanbul, <laughs> not on Constantinople. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> no, I, I, you know, I, I find it interesting because I watched this film and didn't even like process it as a retelling of the Dracula mythos. I just watched the film and enjoyed it for what it was, and just kind of followed the characters. And because I think the characters, as they are portrayed in the film, are rich enough to, uh, and then kind of the 
thematic elements, the more kind of gender, the the queer elements, you know, kind of kind of drive me along. But like listening to you guys talk about how it really is just a retelling of the Dracula myth, like once you said it, I'm like, well, of course it is. How did I miss that? You know, it's like such an obvious element that I just completely missed because I was uh, I was really involved with the. Uh, with the characters, and I found it. But found it, it's it's better. It's it's better and more refreshing to see it this way than when he did Dracula later and really just did it like plain Jane. You know Although what I mean? When he did Dracula, Christopher Lee, uh, Christopher Lee looked more like Dracula than pretty much any cinematic Dracula you see, uh, other right. than like the Gary Oldman one. I was gonna say mustache chaos. Yeah, I mean, because the original Dracula was a swarthy, uh, you know, kind of. Eastern European guy with a mustache. I mean, that was that was Dracula. That was the, the only thing I, could, I, could, I could say about uh, Jess Franco's Dracula is if you're a fan of Jess, Dra- Jess Franco's other films, Dracula is probably the least um, sexual. If you know what I mean. The, oh yeah, no, the, there's there's like little going on there sexual. Yeah, I mean, very very little. And, and that's the one with Klaus Kinski in it, right? Is Renfield? Hold on, yeah. if there's Klaus Kinski, there's got to be sex going on at least. In my well, behind, yeah, when they hit, when they hit cut, he just rips everyone's clothes off and fondles their feet. <laughs> we need to have a show where we just do Klaus Kinski films at some point. Because I would I would be down for that. Yeah. And and he's worth talking about. Uh, as much as I love Klaus Kinski, there's definitely some stuff that's come to light in the last few years about him that's kind of objectionable. But at the same time, so that should be a good discussion, I think, at some point about. Uh, Comparing art to the person who you know actually did yeah. the art—that that's absolutely a conversation. I think we uh, could. Klaus have Kinski and Hugo. I'm trying to remember. Hugo Stiglitz. Stiglitz, yeah. You gotta do Stiglitz too. Well, we did Stiglitz in uh, uh, Nightmare City. <laughs> you're not, you're not gonna tell me Hugo Stiglitz raped his daughter, did you? No, 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 no. Okay, no. he raped right. something else's. <laughs> yeah, we'll do a Klaus Kinski and we'll do a Woody Allen and we'll do them as as one episode and then uh, there you go. <laughs> Jesus, yeah, Klaus Kinski is weird. You you could do like several uh, different ones with him because you could do like a Klaus Klaus Kinski horror episode. You could do a Klaus Kinski spaghetti western episode where because he did several of those fucking films. So you did some war. I, films. I say I say we do a Geary and Hannah and her sisters in one episode. <laughs> good, 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 good. It might be too much for the general public to <laughs> to do to do those two together. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I want you to fap like fap like rabbits and cry yourself to sleep. Yeah, I, I think we'll figure something out. But uh, yeah, uh, final thoughts on this film, uh, Daniel. Um, I did just want to uh, very briefly just talk about the use of the the blood in the film. Yeah, um, okay. There is a repeating visual motif. Well, there's also a visual motif of the scorpion, which I think has a very yeah. obvious representation. But I think it's a really interesting kind of use of the scorpion. Um, but I think there's this repeated thing of the uh, trail of blood down the curtain and, and mm-hmm. down the glass that you see. The use of blood, the way that the blood being spilled when the uh, vampires are biting and the like, very sexual way that that's done. If there was a woman on this podcast, I think she would have a, a very clear thing to say about uh, the way that women have a very different interaction with blood than, than men. Red, Red Wings! At least in terms of a, a, a cisgendered element of it, um, you know, there there is this uh, there is a very clear sexual element of blood, and I and I think that that's uh, something that feels intentional in this film, and even if it's not, I think it's uh, it's very much there. Um, well, um, I'll say I noticed are talk, when are we talking about Carrie or this movie. What are you talking? About? <laughs> no, uh, 
I'll, I'll, I'll say, I noticed when uh, the first time that she bit Linda, where you basically see it where she's drawing back from her throat, the blood's incredibly viscous. It, it looks like fucking maple syrup. Like, yeah. when she's... So it, there's almost, like, kind of uh, allusion to almost, like, seminal fluid. The blood definitely has sexual connotation, and that's, yeah. that's kind of just something I felt like I couldn't leave this episode without saying. I think everything in this film um, has sexual connotations. Mm. Everything in every film has sexual connotation to me, really. Like, oh, that's right. Oh, my God. You know. I will always talk about sex in movies. <laughs> just, just so you know, hold Paul's hold on. holding up a banana right now. Hold on. Paul's holding a banana, and Lee is drinking from a jug of water, and I just think there's I, I, the two I, of them. Just, just, just so you know, this water is not viscous at all. It's very, very light, okay. very drinkable. You would say that. No, I'm, I'm uh, it's not salty at all, just so you know. There you go. And right. you just um, put a banana into a pouch of some sort. <laughs> a cup. <laughs> Other than that, I mean I could I could probably if you I could do a live com of this. Like I could I could sit down with notes and like actually talk about this to some detail. But I think we've said a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I think we've kind of covered the ma- the main themes, and I and I definitely think this is a film that's worth rediscovering. Um, you know, if you're if you're uh, at all uh, interested in kind of uh, what we've talked about and kind of sexual revolution and you know that sort of thing and and kind of the the intersection of horror and eroticism, I think you know we talked a lot when we were talking about the slashers about the way that um, you know the violence in those films comes at the expense of the women through uh, you know that that they that they get nude essentially when they're about to be killed. Yeah. Here they get nude when they're about to kill. Which I think yeah. is is an interesting. It's not really an inversion of the slasher formula because it comes first, but it is it is a different kind of visual metaphor. And um, again, something we're going to talk about if we talk about the other film that I have been mentioning. And, calls uh, yeah, we're we're definitely going to cover that one. That'll yeah. be fun. So uh, that's kind of all I have to say about this uh, right now. But it, it definitely is worth seeking out. And uh, that's yeah. it. Uh, Paul, your uh, final thoughts on the 15 minutes you watched of this film? I think it's good. I like the artistic aspect. The definitely set in t- its time period. Definitely, it's a film that you can. It's set in its time period, but it definitely has a lot of good stuff about it. I like the fact that they, if, if you're going to be artistic, use things to express other things artistically. And I really didn't care about how much blood they used or this and that. I liked when they were showing the scarves as blood dripping everywhere. They were using scarves to show her in the light and then to kind of cover her in a veil of blood. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Using that as an artistic way to show the horror behind the face of beauty. You know, that kind of thing that I liked about it. It's definitely a film that I'll definitely pick up. I have to find it on a certain format and pick it up. But um, it's one of uh, Jess Franco's more artistic, has-a-purpose films mm-hmm. that also is laden with sexuality and nudity, but... Like I said, it's it's more of his actual film within a film kind of a film. So where it's not just oh guess what no reason at all we're gonna shave your pussy. <laughs> you know, and that actually happens in one of his films. Yeah, no yeah, fucking yeah. reason at all. So um so yeah definitely good. This is definitely one of his probably better films out of out of his repertoire. So yeah, and uh, my thoughts pretty much reflect that. Um, it's refreshing to actually see an actual film from Franco as opposed to just uh, basically a softcore porn. 
that gets as sleazy as possible. And again, not that I'm I object to that. I enjoy sleazy porno, whatever. But mm-hmm. this is this actually shows that you know Franco actually was a great filmmaker. Like he actually had a lot of talent. He actually applied himself to it. Uh, he can make great films. This is not necessarily a great film, but it. There's a lot of good stuff in it. It's pushing towards greatness. Like it, it is. It's, it's actively trying to be a great film in this in this genre, in this budget, in this time, in this place. That's that's almost worth anything. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. To to see Franco actually give a shit is great. Because uh, uh, you you look at this compared to Zombie Lake and fucking Oasis of Zombies, and it's like so night and day that it's. You wouldn't think it was the same fucking filmmaker. I mean, mm. it's just so overtly different. But uh, yeah, it's 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 a it was really enjoyable. I'm glad you suggested it, Dan. Uh, we're definitely gonna look at uh, She Killed in Ex- Ecstasy at at some point, um, sometime soon, probably in the new year. I really enjoyed it. I I, th- I think it's worth watching. I think sh- people should uh, definitely check it out. Uh, it's a little hard to find uh, online uh, with any subtitles. Daniel uh, went to painstaking sort of degrees to get subtitles and the actual movie and burn them together for us to watch. If you watch it online, it's p- pretty much just in German language. Yeah, and, that, that, that seems to be a recurring theme with uh, with some of these films of this era is that you can find it pretty easily if you're looking at illicit sources if you speak German. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, but, you, uh, if you, if not, then you might have to spend a few bucks to actually get it. There are there are DVDs and Blu-rays out there. Uh, uh, Synapse Films uh, released this in 1999 on DVD. Uh, Severn Films recently released this in 2015 uh, on DVD and Blu-ray. So if you want to check those out, you can find it there. And no doubt, uh, I don't know if you get uh, English language dubs, but you'll definitely get subtitles at the very least. Also did she killed in ecstasy, and I do believe they have um, uh, English on it, both of them. Yeah, nice, nice. Look for the runtime on this. Uh, there is an the one I think the one we all watched was what eighty nine minutes or something. Or it was an hour and a half. We watched fourteen ninety eight. Yeah, uh, there's there's an Argentine uh, Argentina version of this that's ninety one minutes that I think just has extra padding. The Spanish version of this film cuts out a lot of the nudity and actually adds in extra padding for some weird reason, which is kind of <laughs> weird because it, it's in Spain, you think there would be more nudity, but for some reason it's not. But uh, the, the one you want to look for is generally like the 89-minute uh, version. So, I want to yeah. watch films where they don't cut anything and add extra nudity for no reason. Well, yeah, yeah, that would be the... Uh, that, would that would be Busty Cops. Yeah, that would be that. <laughs> busty Cops, yeah. No plot, <laughs> no... Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, uh, Daniel, you want to uh, tell people where they can find you on the interwebs? Sure. Uh, you can listen to me talk about uh, Doctor Who, if you're at all a Doctor Who fan, and you haven't heard me say this on every single episode of this podcast I've appeared on, uh, at oispaceman.lipsa.com. That's oispaceman.lipsa.com. We do classic and new series, and we have uh, very recently entered the uh, Peter Davison era, and mm-hmm. um, we uh, just did an interview with Elliot Chapman, who is a professional actor, and I think that was a really good conversation. And we yep. barely even talked about the episode we were supposed to talk yeah. about, which was uh, pretty awesome. And uh, around the time this episode airs, if you're listening to it, uh, the next episode we're going to put out is uh, 
the last four episodes of Series 9. If uh, that's something you want us to... That's going to be a bit of a clusterfuck. I have no idea how we're going to cover all that in one episode, <laughs> but we're going to do it. So, congratulations. Um, yeah, yeah, so there you go. Uh, Paul, where can people find you? PA Brew News. Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Funeral Dust on Facebook and YouTube. And Back Mountain DIY YouTube, Back Mountain DIY, Back Mountain Arts and Crafts on Facebook. All right, and uh, we're gonna go to here. Uh, I believe the name of the song is "The Lion and the Cucumber" from the uh, <laughs> from the soundtrack for Vampires oh. Lesbos. It is the same song you will hear uh, in part in Jackie Brown and. Uh, I was actually kind of amazed when I heard it when the, it was just play like I didn't know it was in this film. I was just watching the film is like all of a sudden that popped up. I was like, I've heard this song before. What mm-hmm. the fuck? It oh fucking it's Ordell Roby smoking up pot and trying to figure out the plot of the film of Jackie Brown and figure out how he got fucked over. So that's what we're gonna play and we're gonna go out. Uh, thank you everyone for listening. Please send your comments and questions in. You'll get all the information at the end after the song. And thank you, Daniel and Paul, for joining me tonight. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Let's go out with a pussy and a cucumber.
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For our other episodes, links to Daniel, Paul, and Lee's other stuff, and links to some great podcasts of similar interest, visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can leave us comments on the site or directly email us. We listen and respond to everything. Thank you. Drive through. <laughs>